Welcome to Nobody's Perfect, a community built to support, inspire, and empower Colorado youth and families. Our mission is to collaboratively break down stigma and offer solutions to the mental health and well-being challenges we all can face. Nobody's Perfect is more than a podcast. It's a movement. The show is powered by the National Alliance for Mental Illness, Arapahoe and Douglas Counties, and funded by NAMI Colorado and Kaiser Permanente. I'm your host, Jason Hopkins, and joined today with my co-host, licensed clinical social worker, Amy Staley, and our guest, Lindsay Gregory, who is also a licensed clinical social worker, serving as a clinical director for Eating Recovery Centers and Pathlight. Welcome, you guys. I'm so glad to have you here today. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. So as we get into it, Lindsay, um, I would love, Amy, I know you and she have a much longer relationship than we do, yeah. to give a little context, Amy, about how you guys know each other. And then, of course, Lindsay, you share anything um, about your professional capacity that brings us here today that lets our listeners know a little bit more about you. Great. Thank you, Jason. Um, good morning, Lindsay. Thank you so much for being willing to come on today. Um, we were thrilled that you were willing to join us. And um, Lindsay and I have actually known each other since we were getting our bachelor's in social work at Colorado State University. So um, our social work days go pretty far back. Um, we'll uh -huh. just leave it at that. And, um, you know, <clears throat> after um, our bachelor's in social work, we both supported each other through our master's program. And um, Lindsay actually did um, move into eating recovery center and working with people um, who are impacted by disordered eating and eating disorders um, shortly after her master's program and and really has been in the field for um, some time. And so, Lindsay, I don't want to minimize kind of your areas of expertise. Yeah. I think you'll do a much better job of introducing <clears throat> yourself. But um, I know from my experiences of working alongside you and um, you know, having opportunities to collaborate in that way that you are really an expert in this area and we're thrilled you're here. So please yeah. feel free to share more about yourself. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me here. It really is uh, my pleasure. And yeah, not to age Amy and I, but I have been with Eating Recovery Center for about 15 years now and worked in community mental health for uh, four or five years before that. So it's about 20 years ago that Amy and I got our undergraduate degrees together. Um, and throughout my time at Eating Recovery Center, most of my focus has been treating patients with severe and persistent eating disorders at an inpatient and residential level of care. We're really fortunate here in Denver that we have really great treatment for eating disorder. We have patients that come from all over the country so worked with um, patients from all over the country with a variety of eating disorders. Um, these days, I work at lower levels of care, more at an outpatient and IOP level of care, and also work more with individuals that have generalized anxiety disorders, generalized depression, other mood disorders, um, in addition to eating disorders. But certainly, I would say treating eating disorders is my passion and my expertise um, and just generally working with people who have been affected by eating disorders and disordered eating, which ultimately is all of us um, because we live in a culture where this is very pervasive and um, likely have someone that we really care about whose life has been severely impacted by an eating disorder. So 
Thank you. I I, um, I love hearing your esteemed background and doing this, and I think makes you the perfect uh, person for this conversation. You know, Nobody's Perfect is really framed around us being a resource for parents and loved mm -hmm. ones of youth specifically maybe struggling with issues, you know, specifically related to a topic. And today it's it's eating disorders or disordered eating. And I and I know you're going to give us some context about using those those yeah. two languages to say this. But when you first started thinking about joining the conversation, was there something that was compelling to you that made you feel like it was a conversation worth lending your voice to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I hear the phrase nobody's perfect, one of the first things that comes to mind for me is the extraordinary pressures we face in terms of body image in this culture. <clears throat> Excuse me. We really are a culture that is body obsessed. And as much as we've you know, started having this conversation many years ago, we have a long way to go in terms of broader body acceptance. And that is everything from um, the media that influences us, social media, all the social um, circles that we are in, but also even the medical profession and how far we have to go with medical providers' understanding of um, health at every size and body inclusivity. Um, we really are still pretty globally focused on thinness, and that has serious impacts on all of us and certain members of the population impacts their lives um, in a much more extreme way. So I would say the idea of body perfection and our focus on that is, is very detrimental to um, everybody's mental health and something that we really have to talk about, especially with kids, because we know, um, you know, these body image concerns start as early as six years old, about 40% of girls between the age of six and 12 will tell you that they believe they need to lose weight, that they're dissatisfied with their body, that they don't like their body. Um, and from there, they tend to have body dissatisfaction for the rest of their life. So if we don't get real about this in a serious way, we're going to continue to produce generation after generation of, you know, boys and girls and men and women um, who are dissatisfied with perfectly wonderful bodies. Um, and, you know, we need to see what we can do about that. Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, what's coming up for me is, as you just shared that is, is what would you share with parents um, to think of as we're thinking of um, eating disorders or disordered eating? And, and also if you could clarify that language for us so that everyone um, is on the same page with that. But what do you think is most important um, for parents and or youth to understand about this? Absolutely. So in terms of differentiating disordered eating from an eating disorder, an eating disorder is a DSM diagnosed mental illness. Um, there are diagnostic criteria for an eating disorder, um, and that is generally diagnosed by a treating provider. But there is a huge divergence of people who may not exactly fit into a DSM-diagnosed DSM eating disorder who still really struggle with compulsive dieting, pervasive body dissatisfaction, and just a focus on changing the way they eat, changing the way that they look, that we would consider to be disordered eating in that it's disruptive to their life generally. So anyone who would say, my the amount of time that I spend thinking about food, weight, body, 
gets in the way of living a life that's meaningful and valuable to me, I would say that's a person who struggles with disordered eating. Um, And many times there are people who probably do have more of a, of an eating disorder that could be diagnosed and treated, but spend most of their life um, feeling like their disordered eating is normalized because it's normalized all around us. Right. Um, What I would say in terms of what parents should know and understand about this um, is really to firstly um, not blame or judge yourself for your own concerns with body dissatisfaction and dieting. Again, this is kind of um, the soup we all swim in. We can't avoid a culture where this is a focus, Um, but where possible, we start with ourselves and recognizing how we're talking about our own bodies and our own relationship with food, particularly when it comes to our households and our children. Because one of the first places that kids learn about body image and body dissatisfaction is from parents and and what is role model to them. And even if we think we're differentiating, like the way I treat my body is different than the way I'm going to teach you to treat your body, what we model is what our kids learn. So if I tell my kids it's okay to eat all foods, all foods, foods are good and have their place. And we can have waffles with syrup on a Saturday and, and berries and granola on a Sunday, but I don't participate in eating waffles. Um, these are things our kids are going to pick up on and learn, right? If, if I'm always talking about that, I feel fat, that I don't like the way I look in certain things that I, um, or just in general, talk poorly about myself as a person, Um, That's one of the first places that our kids are going to start to pick up on cues about their own body and experience. Um, So if there's one place, I would say we can start, it's with ourselves. I love that. Even as you're telling the story, I mean, I, I spent most of my life and well into adulthood always believing I was fat. And what I recognized, and gosh, it took me until 45 to realize that I had been conditioned so early by a mother who was chronically a dieter, very weight obsessed. And frankly, I recognized at some point that I had taken on those those pieces of her challenges yeah. with, with weight and body image issues and made those my own. And it was so eye-opening to recognize how I'd carried that narrative forward for so long. Thank you for sharing that and kind of validating that that's a perspective that so many parents bring to the table. I guess with with shifting the focus a little bit, if I'm a parent, you know, what are some warning signs that I could be looking for that might, um, you know, show us that there's something alarming that could be developing or happening with my child or teen that that I might need to be aware of? Yeah, very good question. Um, first of all, I think your experience of learning about your body from your mother, so many of us can relate to that. And this label of, I believe I'm fat, you know, often we're, we're given that label even by medical professionals, right? Who really stand by this, this very rigid idea of BMI or body mass index, which actually tells us almost nothing about someone's health and well-being. Right. And yet it is a metric that gets utilized in everything in the healthcare system. So um, it's not in our head. We're often, we're told by society that we're fat. We're told by medical providers that we're fat or that there's something wrong with our body. And we have a lot of work to do to dispel that. Um, 
In terms of what parents should be looking for in their kids, you know, eating disorders are preventable and that they're a behavioral disease. So often there are other co-occurring or underlying, you know, mental illness or concerns that um, are innate to somebody's natural born temperaments that we can't change and um, we can sort of treat and adjust to, but the behavioral component, um, we can. If someone doesn't start with a diet or start purging, um, then they're probably not gonna end up with anorexia or bulimia. So one of the first things that people can be aware of is the underlying temperament that tends to make certain kiddos more predisposed to an eating disorder. And the biggest indicator is perfectionism and anxiety. So those little people who just tend to be really focused on doing everything right, who tend to, and we as parents tend to have intuition about this, right? We look at our kids and say, wow, she's really beating herself up for that B that she got in class or not getting invited to that birthday party, you know, whatever it may be. There's just certain people who have a temperament where we're more um, sort of rigid, linear in our thinking, perfectionistic, um, that tends to really relate to anxiety disorders, sometimes to OCD or generalized anxiety disorder. And it's a huge pre-indicator of eating disorder, specifically anorexia. So <clears throat> right away, if I notice that sort of temperament type in my kiddo, I would want to be thoughtful about how we're sort of managing or counteracting that. I certainly wouldn't want to contribute to it and be really careful about how much additional pressure I put on that kiddo who's probably putting a ton on themselves. And I would be really extra careful with that kiddo about how we talk about body weight and food. The moment I heard, hey, I think I'm going to go on a diet or I look too fat in my dance outfit. I would really want to sit down and have a conversation right away around um, how we love our bodies, how in our household we um, try and have a healthy relationship with food, et cetera. And I may even want them to see and talk to a therapist really early on about how that perfectionism is affecting them before we even get into um, concerns and consideration about food. Um, the other thing to look for are just kids that are facing social judgment about their bodies, whether it's because they're they're too thin, they're too tall, they're too fat, they're too whatever. Um, kids that are having their body commented on by peers are far more likely to change the way that they eat in relation to that. Um, you know, kids in bigger bodies are less likely to sign up for team sports and other really important elements of socialization because they're feeling that pressure. Um, so I, I would really want to be listening to how my kid talks about themselves and how other people are talking about them and their body and trying to um, introduce healthy eating as much as possible as early as possible. Before we get to Thank the next you. question... The, the thing that I'm just really sitting with is how this work must really shine a mirror back on a parent and recognizing, yeah. you know, the role that they play in this and how, how valuable it is for you to show up in a healthy way to be able to serve your kid, you know, yeah. specifically around this development of their, their psyche and, and body image. 
Yes, a hundred percent. I can tell you, you know, I, I did this work long before I had kids. And now that I have my own kids, I understand the complexity so much more. Um, I <clears throat> went into feeding my kids with a lot of really good um, educated ideas about how I was going to approach food. Things like, you know, food shouldn't always be a reward or a treat. Um, sweet foods should be incorporated in your diet as much as other foods. And, you know, the first time my three-year-old is just refusing to eat that slipping into, if you eat dinner, you can have a cookie is so easy to do. Um, or yeah, with my, with my own self being really careful about how um, I talk about myself. I, I know these things and it's still really, really hard to do. So can't impart enough on parents um, how you need to remove the judgment and we just need to do the best that we can and know even if you're doing it perfectly your kiddo's still going out into a world where there's a lot of forces and figures around them that aren't going to do such a good job so we can't take on the pressure of blaming ourselves um, and for kids that do end up with eating disorders parents oh boy do they blame themselves um and it and it's not helpful it's not helpful for them or for their kids so yeah we have to be really gentle with ourselves well, it. and I, I think too, I'm just sitting here thinking, and um, I, I, I feel like I've had conversations with both of you outside of this about how there are so many things you think of, and then you become a parent and it's, it is a different world mm-hmm. and how much you're <clears throat> discussing. This is ingrained. I'm thinking of my own six-year-old who is, is smaller where we are smaller people. That is our genes. Yeah. And she really wants to not be in a five point harness and her car seat says she has to be over 44 pounds. And that is a conversation that is integrated in just because of her car seat. Right. And there's so many ways I, it's just sitting with me about how this is integrated into our culture, even if it's for a safety reason, right? Yeah. Like a car seat weight makes total sense. It is safety, yeah. but it is something that she talks about regularly. And, um, so some of those are the pieces of like, okay, how do you, how do you change that narrative? Right. I, I can't, I can't change the rule, you know, the safety features of the car seat, um, so that we don't talk about weight. And I think there's a lot of parents out there who probably, um, have similar experiences because it is so ingrained that you, you sometimes don't even know how to stop yourself or realize that you're doing, um, you're having those conversations. So, um, you know, you talked a little bit about the warning signs. Um, can you talk to us about, from a parent's perspective, how to approach a conversation in a non-judgmental way um, without potentially contributing to, um, as you said, that anxiety or the perfectionism pressures and having a youth then maybe not want to open up more about this or not talk about it? Can you talk about some tips of how to approach these conversations Um in that non-judgmental way, both with having um, grace for ourselves and trying not to have judgment for ourselves, but also for um, our loved one or our youth who might yeah. be um, having some signs come up. Yeah. Excuse me. I'm so sorry. I'm recovering from a cold. Yeah, um, yeah that's too. such a good question. We have a saying, um, listen like their life depends on it, meaning really giving space to just hear them. And our instinct as parents is to automatically affirm. So when we hear our child say, I don't feel good about myself, 
it pulls our heart in a way that's almost unbearable, particularly as a mother. And the gut instinct is to say, that's not true. You're perfect. You're beautiful. You're wonderful. You're loving. And there's absolutely a place for affirming children, a, a big and important place for affirming them but not necessarily in those vulnerable moments where they're trying to tell you honestly something that they feel about themselves. And so one of the most impactful things we can do is just hear them and, and say, wow, I'm hearing that that's really strong for you. Thank you for sharing that with me. That maybe felt really scary or uncomfortable to tell me. Thank you so much. Because that opens their little hearts and minds, the idea that they can continue to talk to us about things that are hard. A lot of these young kiddos who have that kind of innate perfectionism, one of the things they worry about is worrying us. They're mm -hmm. very, very sensitive and they are perceiving our reaction, right? So that little perfectionistic little girl, for example, um, she's going to notice if mommy feels uncomfortable around something and not going to bring it up because she's as sensitive to the feelings of others as to her own. So it's just creating that space where we can say how we feel and, and allow a kid to say, I hate my body. And even though we want so badly to return them and say, no, don't, we should, you should love your body. Um, that's not always helpful in that moment. It's really helpful to say, I hear you. Um, and then the best we can model differently how to manage that. So if we have a kid, for example, who we notice is really, um, you know, potentially demonstrating some binging behavior, for example, instead of coming at them and saying, don't do that, that's wrong. Why are you doing this? Do it this way. Um, we make some shifts in the environment. Um, maybe we're more thoughtful about the food that we have in our households. Maybe we're more thoughtful about the way we have family meals together, the way mom and dad eat meals. Um, and then when there's a moment and an opportunity to allow for them to speak, what, what, what does it feel like when you're eating? What does it feel like when you don't? Um, and just really hearing them, that, that's honestly the most impactful thing that we can do. I, I really, I, I like the thoughtfulness of this and really the understanding of in that moment is often not the right time or space to have yeah. a really deeply meaningful and impactful conversation and just listening yeah. and sitting and, and digesting maybe, you know, mm -hmm. what, what I think is so aligned about this conversation for, you know, nobody's perfect is, you know, this idea of, you know, and, and I'm going to use teens have an immense pressure to have the perfect body or yeah. live up to an unrealistic standard of beauty. I think that's actually a people thing. It's not just a teen yeah. thing. But yeah. since we're really talking and 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 wanting to serve parents here today, um, how do you think this drive for physical perfection contributes to disordered eating and negative body image in young person? And, and specifically, this is going to segue into social media and kind of the external pressures that we yeah. see. Help us understand what's really driving this culture. I know we talked about it at a high level. Let's get a little more granular about that if you can. Yeah, um, we love a certain type of body culturally. 
And where that starts from goes way, way back. And then we've just perpetuated it and perpetuated it and perpetuated it. And, and largely we've done that through media um, going way back with sort of that Hollywood perfect body um, and figures of influence that perpetuate that. Now, I think, you know, movie stars are still figures of influence, but we have all these other figures of influence. We have social media um, we have, you know, TikTok stars. Um, we have all kinds of people who have a lot of power over the culture. Um, and then certainly, um, this is a this is a capitalist country that we live in, and capitalism has a huge part of it. Um, we make billions and billions and billions of dollars in this country on diet-related um, products and beauty related products. The diet and beauty industry is a major driver of our economy writ large. So there are literal stakeholders involved in making sure people still never quite feel good enough about themselves and need to buy that product or get on that diet. Um, I mean, this is powerful. This is a force we're probably not going to be able to upheave. until we get to a point where some company makes more money when people feel good about their bodies, um, but we're a long ways away from that. Um, so again, from as early as you know, five, six years old, we start to hear you know different influences that say a certain type of body, generally a thin athletic body is the right body. And we also hear the message and you can obtain it, right? It's not a message of there's a great body and some people are lucky enough to have it and some people aren't. The message is there's a right kind of body and if you do the right things, you can have it too. If you're you know, working out enough or exercising enough or, or trying hard enough or buying the right products or on the right diet, if you have um, the self-control to eat well, you can have that body too. And if you don't, it's your fault. So th these are really strong and all of us can relate to that, right? The idea when it comes to thinness in particular is that it's about control and self-control. So the people who have the right body are doing it right and the people who have the wrong bodies are doing it wrong. <clears throat> so then it becomes, it's not even just about our body, it's about who we are. So yeah. wow, wow, wow. I mean, these, these are strong, strong forces to try and contend with. Well, and I just wonder if part of that is driven by, you know, this notion of healthy body, you yes. know, I mean, it, it begins and ends in my mind with you determining what's healthy for you, Yes. you know, and, and I, and, and from a purely marketing standpoint, I can understand how we've ended up into this thin athletic body as being the gold standard, but the reality is, is done well, I think there is some discernment that we have to do for ourselves in deciding mm -hmm. what's a healthy body for us, you know. <clears throat> I'm not built thin and athletic, but yeah. X, Y, or Z might be really healthy for me. I can see how this gets perpetuated. You know, if I'm a parent, and again, I'm having all of this put upon me and really wanting to navigate raising the healthiest humans possible, you know, what are some ways to counterbalance some of this, this yeah. cultural stuff that's being thrown at us in a healthy, positive way that really ingrains in our youth that, that the goal is to determine what, what's a healthy body for you. Yeah. Well, and let me just add real quick before you answer that. Sorry, Lindsay. I was sitting here thinking, I do think there have been some efforts to talk about 
different bodies yeah. and, and loving different body sizes and different shapes. I mean, as a woman and looking at magazines from when I was, you know, I'll say a tween to like teenager to young adulthood yeah. versus now there, there are dramatically different um, images. Right. And, and yeah. so I'm not minimizing that everything you just said isn't still absolutely true, but I do think there have been some efforts made. Um, but it's hard because even those small efforts, I don't think are necessarily changing the narrative. And I, I think, you know, as mm -hmm. you're talking about mm -hmm. this and as you're answering that for Jason, I'm sitting here trying to think, yeah, what is the solution? How do you completely flop a culture and change yeah. all the marketing and what has driven this? Um, and, and that is why it is important to have these conversations with youth and young people about this culture and um, mindset. But um, sorry, I just wanted to comment on that before you. Yeah, that. yeah. I mean, I think that's very true. I mean, there ha we have made strides and big, important ones. And some of it is just having more choice in terms of what we consume now, right? We're not all turning on the TV and looking at three channels like, you know, we were in the 70s True. and 80s. Um, so, you know, you can have kids that follow YouTubers and TikTokers and Instagram influencers who are body positive and who are living in larger bodies and celebrating fatness. That is there. It wasn't. You're right. It wasn't there when we were teenagers mm -hmm. um, or I never saw it. There are also TikTok celebrities who are absolutely glorifying anorexia. And so a big piece that parents can think about is really trying to have those conversations and having an understanding of what their kids are doing. Um, being super restrictive of media intake probably doesn't work because even if you could control what was happening in your home, again, they're, they're gonna leave, they're gonna be exposed somewhere else. But just having conversations, like, tell me about who you follow on TikTok, like sit down with your teenager and watch TikTok videos together. You'll learn pretty quickly, like who they're following and what they're being exposed to. And without judgment, engage in a conversation about that, like, oh, this person's interesting. What's their deal? And let your teen talk to you about it. Um, and maybe, maybe, maybe you'll get an opportunity to insert some um, of your own opinions about that and say, wow, that, that person really seems like she's pretty obsessed with makeup, huh? Does she ever do anything besides just put on makeup or seems kind of, kind of boring or who, you know, trying to just have conversations with an open mind to see if you can sort of steer, um, your kids in the direction of what, what can be really positive in terms of social media. But um, also it seems like, sorry to interrupt, but it seems like it could mm -hmm. be openly invitational, to learn more about what your teen thinks about yes. those things. Yes, yes. Why do you like this person so much? Tell me what it is about them. Um, just being curious, being curious. And instead of saying, I don't want you doing that anymore. I don't want you on TikTok. I don't like what they're doing. Um, sometimes there's a place like we can say, we can try and limit screen time or try and limit, you know, internet access, especially for really, really young kids that generally is appropriate. A six-year-old really shouldn't be on TikTok. But good luck trying to manage that with a 16-year-old. Um, by now, the conversation is going to change, right? Um, and I want to say one other place that I think parents have some ability to sort of control has to do with the healthcare providers and the other people that they choose for their kids. So a really positive movement right now is the Hayes movement. It's um, H-A-E-S, Health at Every Size. And it is an sort of an umbrella approach to how we manage medical care. 
I would go to my pediatrician and say, is your office haze informed or not? If they don't even know what that is, if they've never heard of being a haze informed provider, that's a red flag. Um, we, you know, the American Pediatric um, Society just last year um, put out really robust guidelines for when to do bariatric surgery in teens. Now, in the eating disorder world, this just sent ripples. We were horrified by this, um, that we would even be talking about a severe and life-altering surgery for a teenager um, that generally is dictated by their BMI and their BMI only. So we really need to understand that healthcare providers are not always serving our kids' best interests. And as empowered parents asking those questions and listening in those appointments, um, you know, a, a pediatrician talking to a two-year-old and their parent about growth charts is one thing. Um, but when we have a 9, 10, 11 year old and the conversation really is steering too heavily towards their weight, um, let's think about if there's a different way to have that conversation. And if that means having a different provider involved and holding healthcare providers accountable as well. Thank you for that. I feel like I, I honestly hadn't heard of that before. So I really appreciate um, any mm -hmm. practical guidance that you can provide here for parents mm -hmm. to walk away and feel more informed with. Um, in addition to the Hayes model, are there any other online resources or platforms or books or, um, you know, resources in general that you would recommend for parents to turn to that um, those of you in the eating disorder world um, do you feel are valuable resources and um, beneficial for youth or family members? Yeah, I mean, tons and tons. I mean, certainly um, you can utilize NIDA. Um, they have, a, that's the um, National Eating Disorder Association. Um, they will have supports. Um, you know, honestly, at this point, just Googling um, healthy body image, disordered eating, eating disorders, part anti-diet culture, um, these sort of hashtags. Um, uh, there's so much out there. Um, the okay. Hayes community has their own platforms. Um, parents can Google that. Um, and there's, there's a lot of diversity in terms of how we even approach healthy body image, right? That is not even a singular topic in and of itself. So it really is a matter of, you know, finding what feels like it's a good fit culturally. Um, I mean, there's a big difference between what we are exposed to as white people in this country versus people of color in this country when it comes to how we talk about body image. Um, so, you know, a Google search is a good place to start and seeing what's out there, honestly. Thank you. So you know, obviously that's a great starting point and some really valuable resources you just share, shared. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about when is it appropriate for a parent to seek professional help for a child that may have yeah. some disordered eating habits? You know, what are some signs that it might be time to involve a doctor or a, a therapist or, you know, a specialist like yourself? Yeah. Um, thank you for bringing that up. I, if I could really instill one point loudly for parents, it's that Eating disorders are entirely treatable. Most people with an eating disorder, if they seek treatment, will have full and lasting recovery. And that has having full and lasting recovery has everything to do with getting the right help as early as possible. The younger a person is, 
the better their outcomes are long-term. You know, little kids and teenagers have a lot more brain plasticity, right? They're able to learn differently and faster and change habits um, much more readily than a 36-year-old. So when we can treat eating disorders early on, we're often able to, you know, resolve those um, disorders much more readily than someone who persists in these behaviors for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and then gets help later in adulthood. Those patients also have good outcomes. Everyone should seek help for an eating disorder. Um, But when you have a 16-year-old who we can diagnose anorexia and we get them into treatment early and aggressively, they have much more likelihood of recovering even than if we got to that kid at 19, 20, and 21. Um, So how early is too early? I don't think there's any such thing. Um, Not everybody has the same and immediate availability of treatment as other people. There is a whole, um, not everyone has access to good eating disorder treatment, which is a whole other concern. But if you do have access to professional care, and in Colorado, all kids can get free therapy now, right? So even if we can't um, get into a treatment facility, having a professional get involved early on is, is really important. In terms of what you would notice, um, generally there are real perceivable shifts. So actual shifts we can see in the way that our kid is eating and talking about food, um, shifts in their weight, that they're gaining weight or losing weight at different cadence than they were at another point in their childhood, and then changes in mood. They're more irritable, they're more isolative, they're not as willing to speak to us as readily as maybe they once were. Um, They're not hanging out with the same friends. They're not engaging in the same activities that they once did, Um, or they're engaging in those activities with a lot more intensity, particularly when it comes to sports. So, um, you know, the, the kid that's just going from, they just were on the track team and went to track practice every day and came home, had dinner, went to bed to the kid that's coming home and running extra miles or waking up early to engage in exercise. Um, I would say parents will know if you're trusting your gut and you're trusting what you're seeing and you think something's up with your kid, there probably is something up with your kid. So it's not second guessing, like this might be a phase or this is no big deal or all teenage girls diet. Um, Ignore those voices. And if you have that gut feeling of something's going on with them, listen to it um, and and start to talk to your healthcare providers, your school counselors, um, even friends, other other parents, um, start to get some advice and, and get that kid into therapy when and if you can. Thank you. And, you know, just to kind of reiterate what you discussed as far as some of the barriers, um, one of the things that we've integrated into this podcast is discussing the overwhelm that the mental health system and treatment providers are experiencing um, Mm -hmm. in regards to kind of the flood of people that have started to seek services. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes there's barriers with wait lists. Sometimes there's barriers um, related to insurance or financial pieces. 
Um, I'm even thinking when I was a director at a behavioral health hospital, the conversations you and I occasionally had mm-hmm. with what was the primary diagnosis and was insurance, yeah. was insurance going to be a barrier based on is, yeah. you know, PTSD, the primary diagnosis or is anorexia and how much we know as, as providers, those um, overlap and are intertwined and um, not necessarily what came first, the chicken or the egg, but how much even those pieces can be barriers. So I just want to name for people that yeah. when you're when you're coming up against these barriers, it is something those of us on the treatment side also struggle with. And we wish yeah. those barriers didn't exist and we wish there was ways to overcome them and doing what you can to find some help instead mm-hmm. of feeling overwhelmed and um, hopeless or helpless that there isn't something for your kid. Um, because I think there's, there's always a place to start. And I don't, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but that was just kind of sitting with me because it's the reality of our system right now. And, um, I think sometimes people can feel there's, there's doors that are closed. Um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't an opening or an opportunity for your kid. Yeah. Yeah. And I will also say we have come a long way in terms of treatment availability, specifically with eating disorders. Even when I started um, with Eating Recovery Center, um, you know, just 15 years ago when we opened, the amount of inpatient beds available for eating disorders was abysmal. Um, The availability of um, treatment in rural areas for outpatient care was abysmal. Um, the miseducation of other providers was, I mean, it was bad. And, and just in my tenure, those things have changed rapidly. I mean, the advent of virtual care now means that people in really rural areas can see a great therapist virtually. That was that did not exist even five, six years ago at all. Yeah. So I, I think there's absolutely barriers. There's barriers with cost and access. Um, and there are more options than ever before. Um, if I was really worried about my kid with an eating disorder, I would persist in trying to get them access, whether it's a registered dietitian, um, a psychiatrist, a therapist, um, you know, even just a primary care provider who was eating disorder informed. Um, you know, I would keep knocking on doors because there's really nothing that replaces medical intervention um, with these disorders, you know, the, the, the trouble with eating disorders is that they're emotional and psychiatric, and they're also physiological. So kids are 10 times more likely to die um, at a young age if they have an eating disorder. Um, so, you know, there's really nothing that replaces getting some kind of support and care and treatment. And I do think there, there's more than there was before, a lot of online resources and so forth. But if someone was really in a situation where they just could not get any professional care or guidance, uh, again, I think it would really be just having as open of a dialogue as possible around food and health in my home and, and, and knocking on the kid's door as much as possible, like not letting them isolate and shut you out and say, I don't want to talk about it or I'm not coming down to dinner let's persist in trying to break through because there is this period of early intervention that means a lot. Um, We don't want to just kind of say, oh, let's give it six months until our new insurance premium kicks in or until, um, you know, you really want to do what you can as early as you can. Yeah. I I love hearing that we are making advancements and that the access to care, especially for those in rural areas, 
is easier than it's ever been. And I use that word easier in quotes. Yeah, necessarily still not easy. I guess the the question I have, I mean, obviously this puts a lot of onus back on parents. You know, Mm -hmm. kids have many other trusted professionals in their lives. What, you know, if I'm a parent and I recognize that my kid is struggling, at what point do I reach out to their teachers or perhaps school administrators or school counselors? Mm -hmm. What role can those people play in supporting you know, a kiddo, if they're really struggling or having challenges that have presented themselves. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, They provide a huge support, as does that kid's peer group, frankly. Um, And another group of adults that you didn't mention that's really important are coaches and the adults that are involved in kids' athletics. Mm -hmm. Um, Athletes, like we know collegiate athletes, for example, are at a huge risk of eating disorder compared to the general college population. And alarmingly, many of their um, trainers and coaches and people involved, even though they will say that they know that their participants on their team might have an eating disorder, they often feel very um, ill-equipped to manage and and intercept and deal with an eating disorder. Mm. So um, I would I would go to their coach and say, hey, have you noticed that her her intensity about this has really changed or shifted? This used to be fun. It doesn't seem like it's as fun for her anymore. Um, more and more as an eating disorder professional, I have had coaches start to reach out to us and participate in the treatment um, of their athletes, which is remarkable. Coaches saying, you're my star runner and I'm not gonna let you run anymore because I can see that you're sick and you're suffering and I'm gonna partner with your family to help you get some help. Um, that alliance is, is extraordinary and we're improving there too. I think a lot more you know, high school coaches are much better informed about eating disorders. So if I had a kid who I believed was struggling with eating disorder and on a sports team, I would go to their coach right away. Mm. Um, definitely their, their teachers um, and their friends. You know, if there's trusted friends to say, hey, have you noticed this? that Amy has been a little bit different or um, anything you want to talk to me about. Um, Kids sometimes are holding a lot of their sense of shame and accountability for their friends, right? Um, Like they're noticing, hey, my my friend seems to be suffering and they don't necessarily feel like they have um, the availability to maybe talk to that friend's parents about it, or there's kind of that code of kids, right? That you don't tattle. So going to their friends and saying, I, I want to talk to you. You've been such a wonderful friend to Amy all these years. I'm worried about her. Are you? Um, and really seeing if we can circle the wagons of getting um, other parents, friends, teachers, counselor, coaches involved in the conversation and saying out loud, I think she may have, I think he may have an eating disorder. Um, we need to just sometimes put that out there um, to sort of increase everybody's awareness of what's going on. Eating disorders, you know, the old, the biggest tenet is they thrive in secrecy, they thrive in shame, they thrive in isolation. So shine a light everywhere you possibly can on that eating disorder to disempower it. Thank you for that. Um, you know, I feel like I have like two or three more questions I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> Jason, how are we doing on time? Do I need to wrap up with one more question yeah, or? I think let's wrap up with one more question. Okay. I, I Again, I could go on about this also. Yeah. This is such valuable information and I can I can just imagine the parents listening, how much insight they're getting from you sharing. So thank you. But um, let, let's wrap it up with a final question, Amy. 
Thank you. Well, Lindsay, again, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I know you and I have talked about this um, outside of this conversation, and I still feel like I've learned so much from you today. So I really appreciate this. Um, you touched at the beginning a little bit on the perfectionism, but if you had to tell us what nobody's perfect means to you, um, what does nobody's perfect mean to you? Wow. I think finding a way to celebrate what makes all of us unique in all regards, whether it's our, our, our body, um, our physical talents, the way that we can connect with others, you know, there seems to be not just with body image, a lot of societal pressure on kids that they need to succeed in certain areas to be a successful person. Um, not everybody's a straight A student, not everybody's a star athlete, not everybody's the most social outgoing person at the party. Um, and really, instead of focusing on how can we make so and so fit better into any one of those areas, actually celebrating somebody's shyness, um, somebody's, you know, what makes them different from their peers as a strength, instead of something that we need to change or alter, that would be really powerful for our kids. And, and if we could do that for ourselves, right? Celebrate um, maybe the things that we feel really insecure about, to look at those as strengths and opportunities. Um, that would be really amazing. Love thank that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Lindsay, I just wanna thank you again for being here today. I mean, you've been such a wealth of information and um, I, I cannot thank you enough for, for being here. And to all of you who are listening, thanks for being part of the Nobody's Perfect. Um, a community to supporting, inspiring, and empowering youth and families. We hope you've enjoyed this transformative conversation today. Together, we're dismantling stigma and providing solutions for the mental health and well-being challenges we all can encounter. Be sure to join us every other week on Cozy101.com slash imperfect to continue embracing our shared human experience. I'm your host, Jason Hopkins, joined by my co-host, Amy Staley, and it's been a pleasure to have you here today. Stay connected, stay inspired, and remember, nobody's perfect because perfection isn't real, your story is. Until next time.